0: Always thankful to have Wednesday night crowd here. I love teaching through the Bible and you guys are the, uh, you know, the crew that comes out. Some people think you're crazy, you know, you go to church twice a week, you Wednesday nighters, you're crazy people. Uh, But uh, you know, I love the, you know, the emphasis on God's word. You know, John Bunyan said of the Bible, he said, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. Uh, there's real benefit of being in the word. Uh, How shall a young man cleanse his way? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now you're clean, Jesus said, by the word that I've spoken unto you. How does Jesus wash his bride in the water of the word, the Bible says. So it's uh, it's it's true, John Bunyan is right. It keeps you from sin as we uh, get the word in our hearts. So that's a good thing. Um, it gives us a sense by the way of right and wrong in a world that's very much uh, topsy-turvy on knowing what that is. Um, do you ever get a sense that the world is wrong about a few things? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, the, the horrors around the world, the political climate, uh, the Middle East, uh, human trafficking, like we could just go on and on about all the things that are happening in the world. But, um, but I love in the Bible, you know, I love the phrases that you kind of like, like the little two word, but God. You know, in the Bible, we realize God is in control and he's, he's not worried. And you and I are safe. No man, John chapter 10, verse 28, can pluck us out of the hand of the, of the Father. We're so thankful for the stability and the blessing of God's word. So that's why I think it's good that you're here tonight, just because we're giving that a focus on the word of God. We're in Luke chapter 22, as we continue our verse-by-verse uh, study. Uh, chapter uh, 22 is a long, uh, long chapter, 71 verses. It's a long one. Uh, I'm going to attempt to do half of it tonight um, because it's chock full. It's a, it's a full chapter, so uh, don't, don't have a heart attack when we're only halfway through and it's almost 12th well, time for your bed, beddy by time. So you might be like, uh, are we going to really do this? Uh, so we'll, we'll cut it into two sections. Um, it does divide nicely into two sections, by the way. The first half is the upper room, um, and then the second half is sort of after the upper room. Uh, and the apprehension of Jesus, uh, you know, we'll see that uh, next next time. But um, you know, one of the things I want you to realize as we're uh, approaching, you know, his apprehension there in the garden with the soldiers and Caiaphas and all those guys. Don't forget, keep in the back of your mind, everything was orchestrated by Jesus. There's nothing surprising him. He knew where he was going. He knew why he was going to do what he was going to do, and um, and there's no su- surprise to Jesus. Um, you know, uh, I'd like to remind you of a few scriptures that tell us that. And remember, way back in Luke chapter 9, uh, we read, it says, And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we know what he was setting his face to go do. I remember in Matthew 16:21, Jesus spelled it out. He said, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Um, But as we've observed the disciples, even though Jesus, you know, began to articulate these things to the disciples, they would never really understand what in the world was going on. Until long after he would die on the cross, res- resurrect from the grave. It would be only after they'd go, oh, that's what he was talking about, you know? And we can't criticize them, but um, I, I feel like some people uh, sort of treat the Bible and, and, um, sort of act like, oh, poor Jesus, he was being dragged against his will, you know, into Caiaphas's house. You even see some of the Jesus movies uh, where they, you know, portray him kind of kicking and screaming, you know, like, I don't want to go. What are you, you know, what are you guys doing to me? Uh, He knew exactly what was happening and he went willingly. That's an important part of this. Well, this is sort of the beginning of that. And uh, and we we, uh, look at the very first verse and we kind of realize where we are here. It says in verse one, now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. Now, right out of the gate, some of you might say, isn't the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover two separate uh, deals? And the answer is um, yes and no. Uh, the Jews would look at it as sort of one uh, one sort of, of you know, uh, Feast. In fact, there's seven major total feasts uh, that the Jews would celebrate. And it's, it's worth studying. We went through all the feasts and the uh, festivals and the celebrations back when we were studying uh, in Leviticus. In fact, um, one of the studies we did is Leviticus 23. And when you study the feasts, you really see Jesus foretold. So remember, whenever you see a feast, uh, you think, oh, the Jews do that. We don't care about that. No, we do because those feasts are pointing to Jesus Christ. And uh, here we come upon the, the Feast of Passover um, as well as Unleavened Bread. Um, uh, now, th- th- let's go over those just real quick so you can kind of be thinking about these, maybe to wet the whistle. Um, the Passover uh, would be no, uh, Nisan, that's the, month, the Jewish calendar, 14th and 15th. Um, uh, and it comes from Leviticus 23. five. It's articulated there. Um, it was a compulsory feast. Uh, every able, able-bodied man had to make his way uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, that was that, that would be kind of a, the, sort of the big one. But um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be the next day and it would go on for a week. Um, I don't know if we have a similar kind of thing, I guess. You know, like uh, sometimes we have Christmas and New Year's. You know, it's like everybody gets the week off between uh, Christmas Day and New Year's. Like some people get the days off between those dates. Um, uh, but uh, that, it was all kind of looked at as one sort of celebration, especially by the first century. That's why verse one says, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which which is called the Passover, that's why they would sort of tag it as one sort of uh, deal. Um, then the feast of first fruits, uh, would be uh, right after that. So these were all kind of in the same time period. Um, by the way, Passover speaks of Jesus, the lamb that would be slain. Exodus 12 articulates that when the Passover was instituted. Um, the feast of unleavened bread speaks of Christ, you know, our provision, the bread of life. And, uh, um, and we could, uh, we could go into that more. Um, and then the fourth uh, of the seven is the Feast of Weeks, or also known um, Pentecost. Um, and we see that in Leviticus uh, 23 articulated. Uh, a bi- uh, next big one, Feast of Trumpets. Um, and, uh, um, and then the Day of Atonement. We've done a bunch of studies on that, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, now, by the way, uh, the, the first four feasts sort of talk about Jesus in his first advent, the first coming of Christ, and the last three are pointing more to the second coming of Christ, and uh, we've done whole uh, teachings on that. You can look that stuff up from uh, Leviticus 23, particularly is where we, uh, I think, did a deep dive into the various feasts and what have you. Um, Feast of First Fruits speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, the morning after the Sabbath or Passover. Uh, Sabbath, of course, Saturday um, or Friday night, depending on how you look at it. Um, within the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you've got this, uh, then the Feast of First Fruits. Um, why did uh, that sort of relate to Jesus? Well, 1 Corinthians 15:20. you can jot this down in your notes, but it says, But now is Christ. Um, risen from the dead and becomes the first fruits of them that slept, Jesus uh, is said of. So the, all the feasts speak of Jesus. Uh, the Feast of Weeks speaks of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, where Jesus said, wait on the Holy Spirit to come uh, upon you. And uh, they're all pictured of the future events, however, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. Um, so uh, he, this, this, this first verse here lets us know they're celebrating fast over. Um, um, so um, there's, there's a bunch of, of things that they would have to prepare uh, for the, the Passover feast. And no doubt this would be the third Passover the disciples will have spent with Jesus. And uh, But this is the big one, and you'll see even Jesus kind of make a point of that. So we're going to kind of divide this little this little first half, verses 1 through 38. We're going to look at this first half of this and sort of divide it up into some sections. The first thing that we might want to jot down, uh, kind of chopping the first half into two chunks, we have before the supper, uh, the preparation, and then we're going to see kind of during the supper, Uh, a whole different, uh, you know, uh, section of this. But verses one through 13 is before the supper, preparation. Um, And the the first point is the religious leaders are preparing for a crime. We'll start with that uh, and we'll take a look at uh, verse two. It says, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, named Iscariot, being of the number of the 12. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and uh, covenanted to give him money. Uh, He promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Notice it was fear that drove these religious leaders to Crucify Jesus. Isn't it amazing what fear can do to people? I mean, the worst thing that ever happened in the world, if you ask me, is uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. It's the best thing for us. But as far as what humanity did to someone, crucifying God in the flesh, pretty bad situation but what was it that drove um, people to do really stupid, horrible things? Fear, fear is, is not a Christian characteristic and it's demonstrated here quite you know, spectacularly how bad these people were off, off base. But the, you know, their fear was of the multitudes. The multitudes loved Jesus. And they, w- they wouldn't allow them to take Jesus by force during the day. So they're, they're coming up with a scheme to sort of apprehend Jesus uh, b- you know, behind the scenes. Um, and, uh, and so the, the, this is the largest feast of the Jews. They're gonna sneak around and conspire to uh, kill God in the flesh, God, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Pretty, uh, pretty amazing. So they covenanted to give him money. Anybody remember how much money? 30 pieces of silver, of course, this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We read in Matthew 26, 15, the exact amount. They covenanted with them uh, for 30 pieces of silver. It says there in Matthew's Gospel. And it was fulfilling Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. Um, And I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price, I was prized out of them and I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. This is such a strange prophecy when you just read it in Zechariah. I wonder if Zechariah thought, what in the world am I writing? Um, But you guys know the story that, that, you know, Jesus would be betrayed for the 30 pieces of silver. Judas would then feel condemned and he'd go and cast the money down in the temple and um, and, then he, and then he does, you know, the, the priests say, we don't wanna use that, it's blood money. And so they use the money to buy a potter's field. Like, this is an amazing fulfillment um, of, of you know the, the, the Bible. Jesus, by the way, his life, his three years of ministry, his birth, his, his life on this earth, there's more than 300 specific prophecies that would be fulfilled exactly of Jesus's life. Um, nobody could do that. How do you write an Old Testament book over, you know, you know, thousands of years, and then have those prophecies come to pass in one single person? Um, but one of those 300 uh, prophecies that he'd be betrayed uh, for 30 pieces of silver, and another one is that there would be a, a potter's field bought with the money, the blood money, exactly as prophesied. Um, so, um, by the way, uh, Where did these priests probably get the money? Um, This is somewhat speculation, but some scholars note that priests, they were, you know, the priests were very pious, or seemingly, um, and they liked to have a show of being, you know, really holy. But one of their things, they would always carry a bag of money, and, uh, you know, uh, tradition says they would carry bags of 30 pieces of silver. And the reason they would do that is to always be ready to make sure they had backup money to buy a lamb if they needed to make sacrifice and they were ready at all times. Uh, You know, they were prepared is the idea. Um, But uh, so some scholars uh, suggest the money they used to betray Jesus would have been some money out of those little sacks that those religious guys would carry around. Um, So, not sure on that one, but it is interesting to think about nonetheless. But we know that this happened just to fulfill prophecy. Now, this, um, not only do we have the religious leaders preparing uh, during uh, the, the supper preparation, but the second part of this now, Jesus prepares for the Passover. Um, and we see that in verse seven. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread um, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, "Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat." Now, um, in this little verse, uh, this is where some of the the you know critics of the Bible, uh, or this is the kind of thing your theo- theological uh, classes, you know theology courses in colleges, you'll get the 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 you know some of the Christian college professors who love to uh, make the 18 year olds that are fresh out of high school into their new theology class, make them shake their Confidence in the Bible. I, I find it interesting that that seems to be an objective. You were raised in a Bible teaching church. Well, let me just shake that up for you. Notice here's a contradiction and they'll point out something like this. And what is it? Well, it's a chronological question. According to the Gospel of John, the leaders had not yet eaten the Passover. We see that in John eighteen twenty-eight. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas, Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. Now, you already, Jesus is already apprehended at this point. And it was early, and they themselves went not into Judgment Hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So these religious guys had not uh, yet eaten the Passover uh, in John 18, 28, which is kind of uh, uh, interesting. Um, But as it turns out, uh, Jesus, um, in fact, John 19, 14, it says, And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, behold, your king. So um, interesting, you know, timing of when the Passover was eaten or not eaten. And there's controversy. But here in our text, the disciples and Jesus, um, you know, seem to have already eaten the Passover before all this stuff happened. So they say, see, it's, it's a contradiction, that, you know. But um, there, there's no contradiction here. It's something that you got to know a little bit about Jewish history. In fact, by the way, if you're a Bible student, um, uh, one of the great... Um, works that I'd like to recommend if you're studying the harmony of the Gospels. I would say this is kind of an essential uh, book for your library if you're into studying this stuff. It's called A Harmony of the Gospels by Robert L. Thomas and Stanley N. Gundry. Um, there's This is the New American Standard version. There's one that they do in the NIV. I think that's the one I have, uh, I hate to admit. But it, it is really good. It's a really good harmony. Um, and here's Here's how they write it in this book. uh, And it it helps us understand what's going on. Um, The Jews were largely in this first century time of Jesus split into two sects, two different groups. Um, And group number one was more what I would say, um, pure Judaism. And the other one is more Roman influenced Judaism. Um, A little bit like the church today, you know, there's people that are following the first century church, the book of Acts, trying to be more like the the Bible in church. But then there's the church that's more worldly and not really following the Bible as a model for churches. Same thing then, there were Jews that were practicing from real Old Testament biblical notions. And then there were Jews that were practicing more of a Roman influenced and almost even secularized version of Judaism. So the Jews at that time, um, you know, would reckon days uh, in one of two ways. And this is, this is something we've talked about before, but um, there were those that the very Jewish that, that sort of thought of as a day as from sunset to sunset. Um, And even in Jerusalem today, if you go there, when they're doing the Sabbath day, it's Friday night at sunset. That's the beginning of the Sabbath day, Friday night at sunset. And it goes all the way to Saturday night at sunset. That's more of the Jewish sort of way. Genesis 1-5 is where that was kind of established by the way. But there's a, the second group, more Roman influence. They started saying from sunrise to sunrise, which is more the way you and I view a day. Um, uh, Roman culture viewed it as a new day started in the morning. Uh, some Jewish connections to that actually, believe it or not, was Genesis 8:22. So some of the Jews said, we have precedent Genesis 8:22, that says it's morning to morning. So if Matthew, Mark and Luke use Jewish reckoning, sunset to sunset, John, the Apostle John, uses the Roman reckoning from sunrise to sunrise. Those overlapping of those days uh, that permitted both groups to celebrate on the same date, but technically a different day. Uh, That's that's the the situation. Now, now you say, Brad, that's that's just dancing around trying to make it all work. It's not, and I'll tell you why. You can look this up. This is historical fact. The temple priests... In the first century, would allow them to bring their lambs for sacrifice at either one of those reckoning of times, like like the priesthood said, you can do it either way, uh, bringing your lamb uh, for sacrifice during the Passover at either uh, or or the, or the earlier time or the later time. The, so, so to say all that, the the Jewish leaders were using the Roman reckoning of that time. Whereas Jesus and his disciples were using the Jewish reckoning of the time. That's how it uh, explains that. I, I know that I, I probably don't have to go into all this uh, for most people like, yeah, whatever, you know, but, but you will get the, the people who love to try to tear the Bible apart. They'll use little things like this. And, and really upon just a little deeper study, you realize they argued about which, which time should be the proper time for celebrating the Passover. And they disagreed. Um, And that's why you see that, what some people would call a contradiction. It's not at all. Does that make sense? Did I just confuse everybody on that one? Okay, good. Well, back to the main point. So, you know, um, Jesus is now preparing for the Passover. Um, um, Notice um, it says here, um, uh, you know, uh, it says in verse 7, Uh, Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Shouldn't the author have written the lamb be killed? Why would they call the lamb the Passover? Anybody wanna take a stab? Somebody said it, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus Christ is our Passover. And that's, that's something we get all the way right, all the way back here. It's gonna come later. Paul's gonna explain this to us later. But uh, you know, this, this is kind of an important part of that. We'll, we'll get into that in a second. But um, you know, the idea of the preparation for the Passover, you'd have to have a lamb, you'd have to get wine, you'd have to make sure and have unleavened bread with bitter herbs and specific dishes. Um, and uh, and you know, we find Jesus you know, gonna be a part of a Seder dinner. A Seder dinner is a Passover dinner. By the way, um, question. Uh, should we as Christians celebrate the Passover dinner why why do we as Christians not generally do that is a question some people would ask should, Jesus and his disciples did it so why shouldn't we um, I'll answer that in a second it'll come up uh, why we don't celebrate uh, the Passover as Christians but it is something we should know about for sure and even study but when it says the Passover should be killed must be killed the, the we're starting to get into the answer of why we don't celebrate Passover because um, you know uh, Jesus is our Passover. Um, and we'll see that as we keep going. So the, the, the word Passover is sort of synonymous with the lamb, which is kind of interesting. Keep that uh, noted. Verse nine, it says, and they said unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare? Uh, where you remember they don't have a house to live in. They don't have a, a church building to do their Seder dinner. Uh, it's kind of like AC Creek back. Remember you guys that were there at the school with us. We had no place to lay our head, uh, as a church. We'd find anything we could do and meet with, uh, Christmas services. And, uh, you know, we'd get snow snowed out because the school would shut us down. And, um, you know, we'd get kicked out of Wednesday night Bible study because of talent shows and, um, finding place anywhere we could have a barbecue. Like it was, really, it was really something to try to do. I kind of felt very disciple in Jesus back in those days. Just, we had no place to go. Uh, I do thank the Lord for this property and a place to do stuff. But that's, that was their situation. They didn't have any place to really, so they're like, Jesus, where should we go? Well, verse 10, Jesus said unto them, um, behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. Oh, come on, Brett, really? This is the sign that they're gonna see as a guy carrying water? Well, uh, did you know in first century, men didn't carry water? That was a ladies' thing to do. Um, by the way, there's still cultures around the world today that still have these rules. Now in America, we don't have these rules as much. We have our own things. I won't mention them because it'll probably get me into trouble. But, um, <laughs> but there are still things that men do and women do, and we kind of have expectations and stuff. But in, in, in those days... Uh, men just don't care. It's like when I was in Africa, I was, saw these ladies pounding millet uh, in those wooden carved-out logs, and they had these big poles, and they were. And I thought it was so cool. And I walked over and, and I asked the ladies, you know, how they were doing, and they showed me. And I said, "Can I try it?" And they chuckled and giggled, and and uh, they said, "Sure." They handed me the, and I was out there. I got a crowd, a bunch of men circled around, and they're watching me do it, you know. And I was like, "What's the big deal?" Apparently, it's not a thing men do in Africa. You don't pound the millet. Uh, they thought that was very sissy of me uh, to. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but nobody said anything. You know, they were kind of like, oh, Americans are a little different than these. And I was like, you don't even know. But anyway, um, how bad it is. But anyway, um, that's the way it was. For a guy to be carrying water is such an unusual thing. So that's why I think Jesus uses this as an identifying. Maybe this guy was very secure in his manliness uh, to carry his thing of water. But that's kind of the thing there. Verse 11, and you shall say unto the good man of the house, uh, you know, remember the guy with the water walks into a house, go in there, say to the goodman of the house, um, the master saith to thee, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? Um, and, uh, and shall, he shall show you a large upper room furnished there make ready. And they went and found as he said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Mark that phrase in verse 13. Just I've marked that in my Bible. It says, and they found as he said unto them. Jesus equals truth. When Jesus says something, it's a done deal. And, and you know this is one of those things. Jesus said, this is what you're gonna see. And that's exactly what happened. What a true thing for us today. If Jesus says something, you can bank on it. You can know it's 100% accurate. You can claim it. As yours, as a promise of truth. I think people are hesitant to believe anybody today because there's so many false statements made in our culture. But when Jesus makes a claim, know that it's absolutely you can bank on it. It's the absolute truth. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." Very important. Well, so the, you know, we see here, um, you know, before the supper, preparation, um, and Jesus prepares the Passover. That's the first part. But the second part of this uh, point of um, the preparation is, um, is during the supper, revela- uh, revela- Jesus reveals his love. A revelation is given here of several things. We're going to see Jesus reveal several things, uh, and we pick it up here in verse 14. It says, and when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Um, and he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Interesting. The first thing we see is Jesus reveals his love for his disciples. Um, this, this revelation is how much he loves them. Um, the words there that you should note, and maybe Mark, when he says, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Um, Maybe in your margin, they try to show you in your margin, if you have a margin reference Bible, it might say on the side, or I have heartily desired. The um, the translators have a hard time uh, emphasizing the word desire strong enough. The Greek word is is actually a very powerful, potent word. I'll show you the word. It's epitomia, which means uh, desire, craving, longing, deep-seated passion. It's like a, a um, it's from the innermost part of your soul desiring. Um, and this is this is what was supposed to be done. It's interesting, the Passover was to be eaten with family. Uh, that was kind of the normal thing. You'd eat Passover with your family. But it seems that Jesus is sort of recognizing his disciples and he's acknowledging his love for them, his care for them. And he says, it's with great desire I have desired. Uh, he looked at them as family, which is kind of kind of cool. I like that. Um, and that's the way he looks at you and me. He he loves us with that same desire, that same passion that he had for his disciples. And the Bible is clear on that one. So he's revealing his love uh, to those disciples. Um, notice in verse 16, for I say, I will not anymore eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom. Um, he's not gonna eat ever again. See, and some people say, contradiction. Jesus rose from the grave and he ate fish with Peter on the seashore, so he, he ate again. He's wrong about that. No, what's he talking about, anybody? He's not gonna eat the Seder dinner again. The, the, the Passover meal he will not eat until the kingdom of God. There's another thing he's not gonna do uh, that might shock you until the kingdoms. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for a second, but, um, but not eat any more of the Passover meal. This is the last one, until the kingdom. That, and when's the kingdom gonna come? We don't know but it still hasn't come like like that. Jesus is saying, I'm not gonna eat the Passover meal for several thousand years after this one is what he's really saying here. Uh, Contributes to the answer to the question, should we as Christians celebrate the Passover as Christians? Um, It's interesting to see Jesus saying, I'm no longer gonna celebrate the Passover until the kingdom. Um, So if we're following Jesus's model, We're not celebrating it because I would just say, jot down this note if you're really curious about why Christians shouldn't celebrate the Passover, or don't have to, I should say, is 1 Corinthians 5, 7. If you remember what Paul said there, purge out there for the leaven that you may, may have a new lump as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. You know, Paul kind of echoes what we read here in Luke 22, when the lamb was called the Passover, um, that wasn't a mistake by you know Luke. It's really right, Jesus Christ is our Passover. So um, really, if, if you and I wanna celebrate sort of the, the, the more church age, Gentile version of Passover, we uh, have communion, the Lord's table. That's what we do, and we're to do that not just once a year, but uh, regular. Do this often, Jesus said, in remembrance of me. Uh, that's, that's an important thing. So uh, can a Christian celebrate Passover? Sure, you could have a Passover dinner, Seder dinner. We've even done it here at Aethi Creek uh, back when we were only about a thousand people. We had a Passover uh, and we were small and we were able to do it back then. Uh, it was pretty fun. Um, the reason a Passover dinner is fun is if you do it and you do it correctly. Um, I love having a Passover dinner with Jewish people because, um, because they, they don't really understand Everything's about Jesus. Uh, when you have a Passover dinner, everything on the table points to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And um, you know, if a, if a non-believing Jew, uh, non-believing in Jesus as the Messiah, is doing a Passover, you could just say, hey, what, what's this here? Uh, there's a lot of things they don't even know what, what it's for or why it's even there. Um, for example, um, uh, we'll talk about the cup in a minute here because there's a certain cup, but did you know one of the cups, um, they add... Warm water to the cup, um, and and if you ask a Jew, why do they why do you add warm water to the wine? Isn't that kind of a bad idea to water down the wine? And if you ask the Jewish people, are like, don't know, they don't really give a reason. Um, there is a reason why they add um, warm water to the third cup. I'll, I'll show you that in a second, uh, just to leave you hanging a little bit. But um, another thing Jesus said is not only that, but. Uh, um, the idea of um, you know the Holy Spirit coming you know we don't celebrate the pastor until he comes again because he's he's no longer here on earth good thing the Holy Spirit fills the church um, and that's we have a, a different you know age that we live in so we're not under that rule of keeping the Passover like the Jews but it is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ nonetheless another thing um, Jesus goes, let's see what else he doesn't do till the kingdom, verse 17. It says, and he took the cup and gave thanks and and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Now, uh, this cup of wine using this, uh, people use this to defend alcohol. Uh, I drink wine because Jesus drank wine. Now I'm not one that says you can't drink wine, you know, with your dinner or alcohol. Uh, you know, is you know I think you have to all things in moderation. And um, be, to be drunk with wine is a clear sin in the Bible, a very clear sin. But I love it when people say I'm just being like Jesus who drank wine. I always like to turn them to this verse, uh, verse four, uh, verse 18. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Jesus has been a teetotaler since this time, all the way to the millennial kingdom, a couple thousand years. So if you really wanna be like Jesus, uh, I'm sort of joking, but, but he, he is not drinking of the fruit of the vine uh, anymore. So, um, so he's not doing the Passover. He's not drinking wine. He's waiting till the kingdom comes. Uh, and he won't, won't celebrate Passover again because he's uh, no longer on the earth. But um, then uh, in verse 19, it says, and he, uh, he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave it unto them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Um, interesting, um, Paul the apostle sort of reveals the larger description uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit of this, this whole moment. Uh, you know, you might keep this scripture, like when you're doing communion uh, at your house, which yes, you can do that. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, you do show the Lord's death until, you know, um, he comes. And and here's Luke 22 is a big communion se- section of scripture, but you might always kind of jot next to it, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul clarifies even more um, articulate as far as just detail, Um, He says, And when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he also took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. So um, so this is interesting. what, so what do we do if we're not doing the Passover meal? What do we do until he comes? We do the communion supper, eating and drinking and remembrance. The important of communion is so, you know, later on Paul says, for this cause, many of you are weak and sick because you don't take seriously or give worth to the body of the Lord and uh, the cup of Christ. Um, uh, I think people miss out. Some churches I think miss out when they do a once a year communion service or biannual con- communion service. Um, I think communion should be a regular part of a Christian's life and, and walk. Um, you know, I think that we've uh, liturgized communion so much. Some of you, I know, some of you are like, man, you can't have communion unless you do it at church. There needs to be the guarding of the sacraments and, and how it's done. Um, that's just church tradition. Tradition of church has made that up. Well, you have to have the priest put it on your tongue. That's just dumb. Uh, first Magabalonians. Uh, again i 'm um, just going to say it. I understand that what they 're trying to do I, I understand they 're trying to keep it holy, make sure it 's not dropped or like it's just it 's some of those kind of strange traditions that people make it so that you can 't have communion at your family devotions at home because you 're not have a priest putting a wafer on a tongue and wearing a pointy hat um, that 's an unfortunate tradition that has taken away the value of communion, the communion table. Um, so uh, think about that. Do you, do you wait for church services only to when you can uh, have communion service or is it something you can do as a family? Now, I hesitate diving into this a little bit, but it is kind of interesting because um, there's a couple cups. Um, we read about the cup, uh, you know, um, there, you know, in verse 18, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until, you know, uh, the kingdom of God shall come. But um, then then there sort of seems to be a differentiation. Verse 20, likewise, also the cup after supper, saying this cup, Um, well, is there any other cup? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, Does anybody know in the Passover Seder dinner, how many cups are important? Anybody? Four, somebody got it, <laughs> our Jewish friends back there. No, I don't know, maybe. But uh, I always like asking the Jews, why are there four cups? And um, a lot of times they, they don't know. Now, cup number one, uh, the Hebrew words that are associated uh, means, uh, for, cup one is meant to bring out, cup number two, meant to deliver, cup number three, cup of blessing, and cup number four, taking out. What is bringing out, taking out, uh, redempt- or you know, blessing? What does that have to do with anything? Well, you go back to Exodus, chapter six, verses six through seven. This is where this, the idea of the four cups, I think originated actually right here. Um, Exodus 6, 6, wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord um, and I will number one, bring you, whoops, what did I do? I pushed the wrong one. Hold on. There we go. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's cup number one, when I told you to be brought out. Uh, Cup number one reminds them of bringing out um, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And cup number two, I will rid you out of their bondage. That's cup number two. And I will redeem you, cup number three, with a stretched out arm with great judgments. Number four, I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Okay, so 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 if you talk to Jewish people about these cups, here's what uh, they either know or don't know. But the four cups of Passover, you might call them, if you want to be a little easier than the first four titles I gave you. Um, the first one is the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out, bring you out of Egypt, out of the world. That's, that's what sanctification means, to be sent apart. Cup number two, the cup of deliverance. I will deliver you. Um, You know, um, I will rid you out of your enemies is the idea. And when I I, uh, use that other language, cup number three is the cup of blessing. I will redeem you. Um, The idea of, uh, you know, saving and redeeming. And then cup number four uh, is the cup of praise. I will take you for my people. Um, and the, the cups are, you know, to be uh, in the Passover dinner, uh, you drink those in a very specific order throughout the Seder. You drink the first cup with uh, Kiddush at the start, the beginning um, of the Seder dinner. Um, that might be the cup that Jesus was first talking about. I will not drink the, of the fruit of the vine until I come. Probably cup number one. Cup number two, drink cup after the Magid telling the, of the Pesach uh, story. If you, you can look this up on what a Passover dinner does. And then cup number three, you drink the third cup after uh, the Berkat uh, Hamazon, which uh, um, is the blessing uh, for the meal. And you guys remember the term, uh, the Afikoman? Uh, It's a very specific part. Also, um, there's all kinds of links in the Old Testament. They uh, uh, pour out Elijah's cup in anticipation for final redemption, the coming of the Messiah. Um, But the uh, order of the Seder dinner, drink the third cup. After drinking the third cup of wine, um, they would pour an additional cup of wine for the prophet Elijah. Um, Pouring this cup is meant to express the sincere hope and expectation of the final redemption um, uh, but ultimately the fourth cup is looking for the Messiah, uh, where I will take you for my people, which is uh, linked to, again, if you're talking to Jews, they won't talk about the Messiah as much in the Seder dinner, but it's all about the Messiah. That's the fun part. So you say, Brett, wh- whoopee doo, who cares about the cup? Well, here's the question. Does anybody know which cup of the Passover dinner Jesus said this cup? Because he says it very specifically here uh, in our text, verse 20. Likewise, after supper. So we already know something about this. After supper, he says uh, he takes this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Anybody want to guess what cup that is? The third cup. Guess which cup they add warm water to? The third cup. Why do they add warm water and make the water with the wine? Like who wants to add warm water to wine? Well, they do. And if you ask the Jews why, I've never heard them answer. We don't know. That's what my grandma did, you know, in the Seder. We added the, you know. Um, But I'll tell you, does anybody want to take a guess? What was the water mixed with wine? What did that have to? When Jesus was crucified, out came a mixture of blood and water. The redemption cup is the one that is beautifully pictured. I believe this is the cup, the third cup. It's not just me uh, who believes this. It's the most, most scholars of the New Testament say, Jesus took the third cup of blessing and said, this cup. And then he says, this is about me. This, and he, and he's, not, he's not pulling any punches. punches. He said, this cup um, is the New Testament, new covenant, not the old covenant, new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. Um, What a beautiful picture, the the Seder dinner, the Passover dinner, but especially the cup. And this is where communion was instituted with the drinking of this third cup in the Seder dinner. There's a link uh, to that, which is kind of important. Um, uh, We know that it's cup three. Uh, I think it's very clear when you read Paul, 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 16. Uh, He even says it, the cup of blessing which we bless Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Um, Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Um, The cup of blessing isn't just him saying, oh, it's such a blessing. He's saying, no, the cup of blessing. Cup number three is what he's saying there, the link there. So the Jewish reader actually understands this better than we do if, if they just take a look at the New Testament, which most of them don't. Um, or they don't care about that. They're Old Testament only. But if they if they took a careful look, hey, Brett, it's so obvious. When I read the Old Testament, um, it's so obvious that Jesus is the Messiah. I have a question for you. Why, why is it so hard for Jews, if you've studied the Old Testament at all, as a Gentile even, you just kind of think, It's so clear. Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible and even in their Passover, everything they do has to do with Jesus. Why in the world can't they see it? Anybody have an answer? Remember Romans, we we read this last Sunday, uh, last weekend. Blindness in part. Why did the Lord allow blindness? Um, It's because they were willingly uh, disobedient to the Lord and the Lord even promised, if you continue to break my statutes, commandments, you will have blindness and you will not see and you'll be scattered and you'll be in unbelief for you know, a long, long time. But good news, blindness is gonna be lifted off their eyes and they're gonna see Jesus as the Messiah. Zachariah, the prophet says, they'll see suddenly Jesus. They'll say, where did you get those wounds? And Jesus will say, I got these wounds in the house of my friends, uh, <clears throat> y'all. Uh, that's kind of what he's saying. Not, not just against the Jews. We're all guilty of the body and blood of Christ. But, but it'll be there where the Jews see that Jesus is the Messiah. So that day is coming. Um, uh, and so, uh, by the way, some people think the fourth cup is the cup where he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. Just a heads up. Some people say that. Um, but cup number four, where he says, I'm going to take you to be my people. Um, and, uh, so some people say that that fourth cup is symbolic that Christ won't drink of that cup until we're gathered together, uh, in, in the marriage feast of the lamb. Some people will say that that'll be when Christ drinks the fourth cup. That's just kind of a freebie for you. Um, you, you know, if you feel like we're doing a deep dive tonight, barely scratching the surface. Can I just say that you guys that know the Seder dinner, I'm just giving you one tiny little scratch surface of all the things about Jesus when it comes to, um, the, the, the By the way, where does it come from that they're supposed to add water with the wine? That comes from the Mishnah, by the way, for you guys that are curious. The Mishnah says you're supposed to do it. That's the only reason the Jews do it, but the Mishnah doesn't really explain why, which is kind of interesting. So as a Christian, we see Jesus so beautifully in the Seder dinner, but as New Testament Christians, we realize it's the Passover. Um, Jesus is our Passover, so we celebrate communion, and we should do it regularly. So. Uh, Back to our main, you know, breaking down of this chapter. Uh, So, the second section here, during the supper, we have revelation. The first thing Jesus revealed was his love in the communion and his love for the disciples. The second part of the supper, he reveals a traitor. And uh, we pick that up in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly, the son of man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves, which of them it was that should do this thing. <laughs> uh, have you ever, do you remember when your parents used to say uh, to, to you and your siblings, somebody did this, you know, A, B, C, or D. And, and suddenly you look at your brothers and sisters. It was for me, my sisters looking at me. That's the way it was. I, I was usually the guilty party. Um, uh, we didn't have to say, mom, is it I? Or is it I? You know, you know, my, my sister Jenny didn't have to say it, my sister Tammy. I was going, it's me. Like I'd have to march in and get the spanking and all that stuff. But. Um, But uh, here's the disciples, what what an interesting human nature, you know, shouldn't have they been confident in their faith knowing that, well, I'm not the one who's betraying Jesus, but isn't it funny, some of these guys are like, oh boy, I hope it's not me. I think in moments of honesty, you and I should understand that we're sinners and we have the potential to do evil, horrible, wretched deeds. Um, It's important to remember that. I think um, it's when we think we stand, that's when we're gonna fall. When we think we've got something conquered, that's when you fail. Um, Boy, how many times in the Bible did one of the Bible characters fail in their greatest point of strength? But uh, I find it interesting. We're all sinners, but sometimes we can forget that we're sinners. But um, these guys, they're reminded that they could have it within them even to betray their friend Jesus. And that's why they're kind of pontificating, wondering, you know, am I the... They began to say within themselves, you know, who would do this thing? Which one of us, you know? Well, Jesus... Um, uh, is about to reveal. And we know um, what that's going to look like. Yeah, interesting, um, In um, you know, the psalmist talks about this, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, you can jot this down. In Psalm 41, 9, there's a little psalm of David. It's prophetic. It, it says, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Um, you know, this whole—the reason I point this scripture out—this this is one of the 300 prophecies. A friend of his betrayed him, um, just out of all the prophecies. But what a heartbreaking thing! You know, here's Jesus pouring his life into these disciples, only to have one of them betray. But Jesus knew—he uh, knew that this would happen, so it shouldn't—it wasn't a shock. Well, so Jesus, number one, he reveals his love. Number two, he reveals a traitor. But now, number three, he's going to reveal the, to the disciples their worldliness. Uh, the disciples still have a lot of worldliness in them. And we'll see that revealed here um, as we continue in verse 24. It says, and there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? Oh boy. <laughs> Jesus just reveals one of you is going to be uh, betray me. And they're like, oh man, I wonder which one of us is. By the way, which one of us is the greatest, you know? Um, and, and by the way, you know, John 13, where Jesus, you know, like it's at the same dinner table that Jesus, you know, strips himself and he's washing the disciples' feet. The greatest among them is a servant. He's the one that would wash their disciples' feet, but they're sitting around, huh, I wonder which one of us are the greatest. I'm sure every time this scripture is read in churches like right now, all the disciples up in heaven going, oh, no, not Luke chapter 22. Come on, hurry up, Pastor Brad. Keep keep going, like keep reading. Um, But no, I'm going to camp out here for a little while uh, (laughs) because this... This is human nature. This is, this is you know, humans just uh, being wacko. And we're the same. We're just like these disciples. We, 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 in our quietness of our minds, wonder, am I better than they are? Do, am I wealthier or more powerful? Or am I smarter or better looking? Or, you know, we, we tend to measure ourselves against everyone else. Um, but Jesus is the ultimate measurement. How do you stack up against Jesus? And the answer is none of us are even close. So the conversation goes from who's gonna betray Jesus to who's the best. And this is where Jesus, I, I think Jesus is gonna be very gracious to these guys, um, but you, you do sense the heartbrokenness of, of, of Jesus as he talks about, uh, talks about them. Verse, um, verse 25, it says, "'And he said unto them, "'The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. "'They that exercise authority upon them "'are called benefactors, but you shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he that is chief as he that doth serve. Um, You know, by the way, uh, this is a common thing that Jesus talked about. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. Here, there's kind of a different thing. Be like the younger. In Bible times, the younger always had to submit to the older. Verse 27, for whether is greater he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth. It is not he that sits at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. You are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint you uh, unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, right now you guys need to you know, be servants. Uh, and be the younger, the submitted. But there's coming a day, he says, he he sort of gives them hope. He's saying someday you're gonna eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, in in the book book of Revelation, there's 24 thrones. Who sits on those thrones? Um, I will go over that just in a few weeks when we get to the book of Revelation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, It might be a little longer than a few weeks, but um, but if you want, you can go back and look that up in our former teachings. But this, this discussion about the disciples sitting on thrones is part of that discussion. Something to think about, a little wet the whistle there. But Jesus is calling his disciples to be servants. Um, eventually they'll have authority in heaven, but not yet is what he's saying. So Philippians two seven, Jesus is the model. He made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, uh, was made in the likeness of men. Uh, if you wanna be a good leader, you must be a good servant. That's just the leadership 101. By the way, did, did you know there's there's something that's being found out by the secular world? Um, there's actually books being written by secular people that uh, about servant leadership, which is really kind of funny because uh, they didn't invent that. Jesus is the first one who really taught us about that. We Christians should be better at servant leadership than the world. But it's funny to me that the world is finding just a truth, whether they know it's a Jesus truth or not, It is a Jesus thing that um, if you wanna be great, you must become least. And if you wanna be a leader, you gotta become a servant. Uh, It goes against our flesh and our human nature, but uh, it's funny how even the world is starting to figure that out kind of interestingly. Well, um, verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Uh uh-oh. Did your mom ever say your name twice? Or, or maybe more uh, like your name with your middle name included. When, when my mom said Brett Evan Metter, I thought, uh-oh, time to run, Pew, you know, get out of there because uh, you're in big trouble. But it's, it's like Jesus is talking about servant leadership and being humble, and then he turns to Peter and says, Simon, I'm sure uh, Simon. Two times, I'm sure the other was like, he's gonna get it. Here comes Peter. Uh, But but what is he going to say? Well, it's interesting. He says, I think in real compassion, verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, we have the advantage of knowing what happened with poor Peter. Um, you know, verses uh, 31 and 32, Jesus knows what's gonna happen. We know because the story unfolds in the gospel and in the book of Acts, we see how it all kind of comes out. But, um, you know, he mentions failure, but also turning back to him. Uh, in verse 32, that, it says, when thou art converted, we're not talking about converted to become a Christian, but the, the, the word converted uh, is an interesting uh, Greek word, epistrepho which means to turn around, to return back to where you were before. It's alike, if similar to the word repentance. Um, so you might even say, Peter, you know, you're gonna fail, but when you change your mind and come back and return or repent, um, guess what? Uh, you're gonna, your job is gonna be to strengthen the, the, your brethren. You know, failure is deemed as fatal by a lot of people. If you fail, you've, you're, you're, it's fatal, you're done. But one thing about a Christian that I love is with God's economy, you can fail and make mistakes, but failure is not fatal if you put your trust in the Lord. If you repent and if you turn around and go back the opposite direction, failure is not fatal when you turn to Christ. Peter's failure could have been you know, disastrous. You know, Judas, his failure was disastrous, um, but there was no turning back. He didn't go back from his sin. Interesting question. You know, if Judas would have repented after he, um, you know, betrayed Jesus, could he have been saved? There's a question for you. Well, Brett, it says he repented of the deed that he did, but it was a different word for repent. It's not the repentance of like I really uh, changed my direction, but he it's like he felt guilty and he knew he was, you know, uh, doomed. It wasn't a repentance to salvation. It was just uh, realizing he had failed. But his was fatal because he didn't turn back to the Lord. He just turned to himself and committed suicide. But failure is not fatal when you understand that you can repent and turn back. Peter denied Jesus, remember, three times. But he would repent and be reconciled. And then would Peter eventually strengthen the church? Boy, you bet uh, the Catholics overdid a little bit with the Pope thing. But, um, but Peter really is a pillar and a strength for the church. Uh, Jesus, now, by the way, um, Peter had a great thing going for him. Probably the best thing Peter had going for him, even though he was a goofball and denied Jesus three times, and um, somebody was praying for him. Who was praying for Peter? Jesus, it says it right here. Um, but I have prayed for thee. Do you think Jesus's prayers are somewhat powerful? <laughs> Boy, you better believe it. And you say, well, good for Peter, Pastor Brett. Uh, that, you know, Jesus is praying for Peter. Well, la ti da but, but do you know what Jesus is doing for you right now? Yeah, jot it down in your notes, Hebrews 7, 25. It says, um, the Lord is able to save even to the uttermost that come to God, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ ever lives in his resurrected form to pray for you, even if you're out in the uttermost. Um, that's, that's what a beautiful promise that is. Well, Peter had that, but so, so do you. You've got Jesus uh, interceding on behalf of you—that's that's profound. Well, verse thirty-three, and he said unto him, "Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both to prison and to death." Da, 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 da. Do you see a cape coming out of Peter? Like, yeah, whatever on this whole you know failure thing. Uh, poor Peter. He, he's, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. We know the story. He he, he blows it. But um, but verse thirty-four, um, Jesus said, "I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou." shalt thrice deny me or deny that thou knowest me." Um, And we know the way this turned out and the cock did crow before the morning. Um, Now, uh, good news though, Peter would be turned around. It's a beautiful story. We'll get into that uh, soon, uh, even more in detail. Now verse 35, um, and he said unto them, "'When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, "'lacked ye anything?' And they said nothing. Now, if you remember, uh, by the way, Jesus sent them out. Um, you know, in, in the first uh, you know apostolic sending, Matthew chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 is where we read that, where Jesus sent them with no script, nothing, and the Lord just it just took care of them. What they would eat, where they would stay, it was kind of a miraculous thing. But notice, um, Jesus changes it a little bit. He says, verse 36. Then said he unto them, But now, he that hath a purse, let him take it and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among among the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. Now, before all of you Second Amendment people are like, yeah, tell you what, praise the Lord. Um, uh, we'll get into that in a second. But um, what's Jesus talking about? Well, he said, the last time I sent you out, I told you don't bring anything. Now I want you to bring stuff, bring your script, bring a soul sword. Um, and this is a new season for them. Um, now, by the way, this language is a little confusing. Why would Jesus say, the time has come and he was reckoned among the transgressors? Jesus is quoting, by the way, from Isaiah 53, 12, where the prophet Isaiah says that Jesus, the Messiah, prophetically, it was saying, would be reckoned among the transgressors, or numbered, as Isaiah says it. He'll be numbered among the transgressors. Like they'll falsely call him a sinner, and they'll go after him and try to destroy him. Jesus is just referring to those prophecies about what's about to happen to him is gonna happen. And he's saying, disciples, you guys need to be ready. This is a little different than the first time I sent you out. You need to have your, your uh, gear uh, ready to go. Yeah, bring your, your you know, little satchel bag, uh, let them take it. Uh, a script, uh, if you don't have a sword, sell your garment and get one. Um, this is a new season for them, the time where trouble is coming. Now." Um, I wonder if the disciples are like, is this the time we're gonna start to overthrow the Roman empire? Uh, he told us to get a sword. Um, but no, Jesus said, no, just a couple swords. That's enough. Uh, you know, don't, don't go crazy. Now, this is where the, um, you know, this is like the one scripture uh, the NRA uh, was able to say, see, self-defense. And, and, uh, and I would say, yes, by the way, there's, if, if you look among theolo- theological circles, there's four arguments about this that I'm not gonna go into tonight. Um, Because uh, I think they're just esoteric, sort of fancy um, uh, arguments about what Jesus meant by carry a sword. I just, I'm only gonna give you one point, because I think Jesus meant what he said and said what he meant. Bring a sword. Why? Because you're gonna be in danger. The idea is, in fact, self-defense. Now, um, so I so was like, yeah, get those guns, go down to Camela's, let's start buying up the store, you know, and, and all this stuff. Now here's the thing, again, notice that Jesus said, two are enough, even in this, he shows moderation, by the way, um, for some of you guys, I uh, know who you are. Um, <laughs> and I know how y'all think, you know, um, but so here's our one little scripture people hang on to for self-defense and, and having a, a gun. Um, and I think uh, you can use that for that. I think I think as long as you're you're understanding what it's for. If somebody, let's say, you know, the apocalypse happens, and uh, or a apocalypse, we're going to be out of here before that happens. But let's say a famine hits the land, and you're in your bunker as a Christian, and you got your shotgun and your Cheerios stored up for you know seven years of Cheerios and your neighbor comes and knocks on your bunker door, tink, 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 and, uh, and you open the door, boom, because they want your Cheerios. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Um, see, some people, you know, this whole shooting people and stuff, they take it way out of, you know, if your life is on the line or your family is being horribly threatened of death, um, there is a time and a place where I think you can make a biblical defense for self-defense with a deadly weapon, of course. But I think uh, you also have to be really careful. Uh, I think some people take this way too far. Uh, You know, Jesus. uh, How many times did Jesus talk about weapons versus how many times did Jesus talk about being loving your enemies um, and being peacemakers? Uh, Like you know, uh, Matthew five nine. Blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Um, Now I know what some of you are thinking. Colt Model 1873, uh, de- its model designation P for Peacemaker, right? Uh, if you know your weapons, um, uh, there was a there was a time that God made man, but Sam Colt made them all equal. I know who you guys are, um, uh, but but one of the things you really need to remember is uh, I could go on for hours on the scriptures that tell us to love our enemies, do good to those that persecute us and revile us and hate us and imagine all evil against us. Um, as much as life within you live peaceably with all men. And it doesn't say some, it says all men. So um, before you get all uh, excited about, yeah, I'm gonna get guns and you know shoot people and stuff, um, that's not the heart of the Lord at all. Uh, and I hope you understand that. You, I think from what I see in a lot of Christian circles is, is I just kind of cringe a little bit and think that's not really the heart behind what Jesus is saying here. Um, the disciples were gonna face some very deadly and um, threatening issues. And because of that, Jesus is saying, carry a sword. I don't think you can get around that. Some people would like to, but you can't. Uh, the self-defense is kind of a thing here. But I also think we have to sort of temper that and remember that um, as Christians, you know, they'll they'll not know your disciples by your self-defense strategies and tactics. They will know you're my Christians, you're my disciples by your love one for another, and even I think how we treat our enemies is really an important thing. So, um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting how people take stuff and run with it. This this is all you got right here. This little mention of a couple swords. Be careful with that one. I, I would just say. Um, don't overdo it. Don't get into uh, to the wrong kind of idea. Well, Jesus sets the stage saying, okay, it's going to go down. Here we go. And in verses 39 and onward, that's what it all picks up. And we're going to see the, uh, you know, arresting, the apprehension of Jesus, the betrayal in the garden. And we'll pick that up next week. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you, um, your word gives us detailed information, more than we could ever really uh, dive into adequately, but we get a, a lifetime to study your word and see the good fruit from your word. I pray that you give us a biblical mindset, not a worldly mindset or going with just the masses and the crowds and what they think, but Lord, that your word would temper our thinking, um, that we would be submitted to your heart and your nature as we study the scripture, Lord. Um, I pray that even where we're stubborn and we're um, not easily moved, I pray that we'd have a great sensitivity. Even as Jesus is telling the disciples how they're gonna betray, one of them is gonna betray, they're wondering which one of them is the greatest. We see, Lord, that human nature in this chapter, we recognize that of ourselves. We can read a chapter like this and even miss some of the great truths that we've just read and, and move on our merry way without actually having learned anything. So I pray, Lord, that you'd find an attentive group and that as we've studied this passage that we'd meditate on your word day and night and be like the tree firmly planted by the river of water that Psalm 1 declares. Give us understanding, help us to remember your word. Bless these people who've carved out time tonight to go through these scriptures, Lord. Bless them, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.